ask you this morning, what do you see when you look at Jesus? I don't mean his physical description. I mean, what do you see when you look into the character of this one we've been hearing about this morning? Do you see perhaps just a good opportunity to get ahead individually? That is, do you simply see Christ as a chance for self-promotion or perhaps for personal advancement? Maybe as a shot at some upward mobility, spiritually speaking. Is your interest in Jesus little more than that he's your best bet to climb God's kingdom ladder here and now? Certainly hope not. What do you really see when you see Jesus? Perhaps somebody here sitting this morning would be honest enough to admit that sometimes you simply see Jesus as your heavenly meal ticket. For you, following Christ is your one moment to shine in the sun. I've been there. You've reduced Jesus, following Jesus, to a golden opportunity to seize greater positions of power and prominence, more influence and importance before somebody else snatches it up. What do you see when you see Jesus? Church, do we see the glory of his call to take up our cross and to follow him? Or are we blinded by the glint of his kingly crown? What do you see when you look at Jesus? Do we see following Jesus as the one and only path of selfless service or merely as a way to have others serve us? Listen, is the road behind Jesus one of relative ease for you this morning? Comfort and prosperity, or is his road a road leading to a certain and necessary kind of death? The death of yourself, the death of your kingdom. In essence, this morning we're talking about the road to true greatness in God's eternal kingdom. We are looking together this month of December here at Trinity at five big reasons why Christ came to earth at Christmas. We saw last Sunday morning from Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 that in the first place Jesus came at Christmas some 2,000 years ago to keep the law and the prophets. Something that each of us needed to have done, Christ came and did for us. Jesus came to keep the law and the prophets. But secondly, today, from the second gospel, that is the gospel of Mark, we're going to see a second big reason why Christ came at Christmas. And it is this, if you're a note taker, this is our big takeaway from today, that Jesus Christ came to show us that servanthood is the way to true spiritual greatness in God's heavenly economy in Christ's eternal kingdom. To put it another way from earlier in Mark's gospel, chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and be the servant of all. Jesus came to correct our spiritually flawed vision and our perspective about what true greatness as his followers, actually looks like. He came to show us that the way to be exalted is by firstly being humbled, that the way in his kingdom up is oddly enough by going down. Jesus came to demonstrate that his kingdom people are those who stand tall by stooping low. 
And that the way to true glory with God is by embracing the reality of suffering and of self-denial and of servitude to others. In short, Jesus came to reveal that true spiritual greatness comes by walking behind him on the road to Jerusalem. His mission was his message. I want you to hear now the word of the Lord beginning in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. In the very next breath, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to Jesus, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But... To sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Not surprisingly, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Praise be to God for his fully inspired, totally inerrant and completely trustworthy word. The first thing that we need to observe from our passage in Mark 10 This morning is this, they're on a road. They're on a road to suffering. They're on a road to crucifixion. In fact, this is a strange Christmas text, I realize. You have to fast forward in the story some 33 years to just about one week. One week is all that's left in his first advent. The Lord Jesus Christ would be executed on the outskirts of Jerusalem at least from the world's perspective, as nothing more than a common criminal in just a week. But this was not before he was tragically betrayed by a friend. He was abandoned by his brothers. He was rejected by his people and brutally beaten at the hands of the Romans. Listen, the end of Jesus' own perfectly righteous road would see him quite literally giving his life as a ransom for many. The idea there is that Jesus went to the cross to buy you back, to purchase for himself a people for his praise. That is what his death accomplished for us. But 
listen, before Jesus would suffer and die, he would take his precious time with his precious followers to clarify the real nature of what it meant to follow him in his kingdom. These very pages of Mark's gospel provide us with some lessons on the road of Christian discipleship. In fact, we could name these chapters that very title, Lessons on the Road of Christian Discipleship. Mark chapters 8 through 10 present the climax to the story of Mark's gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which began in Mark 1 verse 1. Pastor Dane Ortland says that the first half of Mark shows us that Jesus is the king, but the second half of Mark shows us how he is king. Mark, the first eight chapters show us that Jesus is the one who comes defeating death and disease, uh, driving out demons. He is an unusual, a shocking savior. The second half of Mark shows us exactly the, the, the tragic nature of his kingdom. Mark who, by the way, got much of his material, we understand from tradition from the apostle Peter, tells us explicitly that Jesus is the unique servant king. Jesus is the servant king, I think specifically predicted in Isaiah chapter 52 and chapter 53. I would suggest to you that the entire book of Mark is summed up in its key verse, which occurs in our passage this morning, At the very end of our text, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where the Bible says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the key that unlocks Mark's gospel. Simply stated this morning, the gospel of Mark is about a king who shows up to serve and not to be served. How very odd when we look at the condition of human kingdoms today. Notice here with me that Jesus' mission is captured in two statements. Verse 45 says, Jesus came to serve and Jesus came to give. Again, I submit to you the point, maybe the biggest point of Mark's gospel is this, that the road to greatness in God's eyes and the way to share in Christ's kingdom glory is by having faith in and following this servant king who lays down his life for others. Jesus' kingdom is truly a radically different sort of kingdom. He did not come to get. He did not come to demand. He did not come to take. He came to give and to serve us. So here's the next thing that we need to see. If we have noted, firstly, that he's on the road, we need to understand, secondly, how Jesus, I think very interestingly, goes about teaching his disciples about this radically different kingdom. I want you to notice that there is a very interesting pattern that begins to emerge right here in the middle of Mark's gospel. Mark chapters 8 through 10, these three chapters are again about Christ and his disciples on the road to Jerusalem, as I've already pointed out. And one could argue that the hinge point of Mark's gospel occurs in Mark 8, 29, where Jesus, sorry, where Peter declares, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is the the apex of Mark's gospel. And all of the action from that point forward begins to really descend into abandonment and betrayal and his eventual crucifixion, followed by his resurrection. 
Notice immediately after Peter's great confession, though, of Jesus as God's Messiah, as Jesus and his disciples began to point themselves towards Jerusalem, that Jesus predicts for the very first time his suffering, his death, and his resurrection in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Again, he's answering the question, what sort of king am I? The word of God says this, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Notice the next little phrase in verse 32, and he said this plainly to them. One of the things you'll notice as you study Mark's gospel is, particularly in these chapters, a lot of references to vision or sight or seeing things, even here plainly. By the way, the title Son of Man, which is a very important title, in fact, maybe Christ's favorite self-designation, occurs 13 times in the gospel of Mark. And what Jesus is saying is the Son of Man is coming in power, but the Son of Man is coming with a necessity to die. This first prediction gets, gives us the necessity of his cross. Now, Peter, as many of you will recall, didn't take Jesus' prediction all that well, and he rebukes the Lord astonishingly in verses 32 and 33 of Mark 8. This is followed by Jesus' own correction of Peter and further instruction to the disciples about the necessity of taking up one's cross and following after him. Then comes Jesus' second prediction in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Listen to God's word again. They, were, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, notice that, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. Not once, but now twice. Jesus instructs his disciples on the necessity and even hear the certainty of his suffering. One translation says, the Son of Man shall be betrayed, shall be delivered. Mark is clear to let his readers know, though, the disciples simply do not get it. I'll make an observation about that in just a moment. But here's the pattern that, if you've never noticed before, emerges very clearly in Jesus' instruction concerning true greatness in his kingdom. Prediction followed by objection or argument. Finally, clarification or correction. And this is a threefold pattern repeated in Mark chapters 8 through 10. After the first prediction, Peter had been the one to make an objection. We saw that. Here, after the second prediction, it's the entire group of disciples. Remember, they famously said in Mark 9, 33, who is the greatest among us? Jesus says, what were you arguing about on the way? But verse 34 says, they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. It's pathetic, isn't it? It's pathetic only until we realize we're no different. If we had been walking with Jesus, that's exactly what had been coming from my lips, perhaps from yours as well. How could they be so insensitive? How could they make a statement like this? What's wrong with you guys? Perhaps you've had that similar experience. But 
Again, they're a picture of us, friends. It's here that I need to stop for a moment and point out what I think is perhaps one of the neatest things about the Gospel of Mark that I noted this week. One more tiny detail that I think is vital to understanding the real point of the story. It's the reason why I began this message asking you three times, what do you see when you look at Jesus? Bookending Jesus' clarifying instructions to his fuzzy-headed disciples on the road to Jerusalem are two important and strategic miracles, miracles that relate to healing of blind people. The first is found in Mark chapter 8, verse 22, right before, mind you, Peter's climactic confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. We read about Jesus healing a blind man, really in what commentators have described is a twofold healing. Look with me in the text of Matthew 8, verse, excuse me, Mark 8, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Now here's a tip. The healing is the message. The healing here is the message. Why a two-stage healing of this blind man? Why didn't Jesus just simply correct this man's faulty vision all at once. He certainly could have. He did similar miracles at other times. The answer is that this blind man, though actually healed miraculously by Christ, represented another group of spiritually impaired people known as Jesus' disciples. They were a picture of Jesus' disciples. They had their own vision problem of Christ and his kingdom. Once again, remember the pattern that we have seen emerge on the road to Jerusalem, a pattern of prediction, a pattern of objection, and a pattern of clarification or correction. And note that Jesus is dealing with a sort of kingdom nearsightedness in his disciples. They wanted the glory, but they wanted it now. They wanted the glory ahead of the agony of the cross. Jesus was correcting their near-sightedness. Like this blind man, a couple of years at Jesus' side, had listening to his teaching and observing his amazing power, his miracles, and his way of life, had begun to open their eyes. The disciples certainly had insight that they didn't previously have, but they still didn't see the nature of of his kingdom quite clearly yet. They could see the outline truth of Jesus in shapes and forms and colors, but their vision was still fuzzy. He was sort of like a tree walking. However, as the end of the road of Messiah came closer, as the realities of suffering and serving with Christ came near, Mark highlights the disciples' lack of vision in the healing, not just of one, but of two blind men, exposing their lack of spiritual insight into the real nature of Christ and his kingdom. 
The disciples' vision of true kingdom virtue is extremely blurry at this point. And I simply want to pause and ask you again this morning, when you see Jesus, what do you see? Do you see a cheap way to get ahead? Or do you see a cross to pick up and follow? Well, now on to prediction number three, Mark chapter 10, verse 32, as we get to the conclusion of our message this morning. And they were on the road. That's why I started here. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Here for the very first time, he had not mentioned where they were going in any of the previous predictions. For the first time, he says, we're going up to Jerusalem. The location, the precise location of his looming suffering is now exposed. And he highlighted earlier the necessity and the certainty. Here he's going to unpack the cruelty of his cross. Describing exactly, even in a tick-tock fashion, what would take place ahead of them just one week later. The text describes it this way in Mark 10, 32. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and the twelve, the disciples, were amazed. And those who followed after them, the crowd, they were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying... See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. Here we have the most uh, descriptive prediction of the three. Now, what would you expect to hear next from the lips of the disciples, from the mouths of these clear-headed, spiritually-seeing men like John and James. What would you expect to see next of the disciple whom Jesus loved or a pillar of the Jerusalem church in James and John? Well, compassion, empathy, perhaps even righteous anger that Jesus is going to be treated this way. Lord, you are innocent and holy. How could anybody treat you this way? Instead, all we see here out of the disciples is yet spiritual blindness. Selfishness, in fact. Three times, friends, Jesus had predicted his suffering and his exaltation. And three times, Jesus' closest confidence had totally missed the point. It's not even as if it registered with them. They were preoccupied with power here and now. Jesus would seek to heal their spiritual blindness through patient, merciful instruction about the true nature of his kingdom. In actuality, James and John's brazen request, found in verses 35 to 45, following upon the heels of Jesus' third prediction, is linked with that second miracle of the healing of a blind man. Not the one from chapter 8. It's a different healing entirely. And I know that it's linked because of what comes from Jesus' lips. With this question, found in Mark 10, 36, and in Mark 10, 51, Jesus says to James and John on the one hand, and then to a blind man on the other, he says the exact same thing. He says, what do you want me to do for you? What did James and John, two of the three members, along with Peter, who had already corrected, uh, Jesus had already corrected back in chapter 8 of Christ's inner circle, what did they see when they looked at Jesus? Peter, James, and John, 
that we esteem, what did they see? They saw an opportunity for power. What did they see? They saw their chance at key positions of authority as a, and a special share in the coming glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had spoken of his glory in Mark 8, 38. Lord, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. That phrase there in the text, at your right or at your left hand, the positions in antiquity of the right hand or the left hand of any king or ruler were positions of unequaled importance. Distinction and authority or power, great influence, those were the spots they wanted. They sought to lay claim. It's interesting that Matthew's account of the exact same story places the request on the lips of James and John's mom, Salome. Here, Mark puts it, this bold request, straight on their shoulders, the sons of Zebedee. But in either case, this was a carnal conspiracy for power, a grasp for undeserved glory and preeminence. And frankly, it revealed just how little understanding, just how spiritually blind these men still were. Now let's contrast for a moment this request, what do you want me to do for you, in the context of Jesus' healing of Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10. Look over at Mark chapter 10, verse 46 and following. And consider what did blind Bartimaeus see when he saw that Jesus was coming by him. Again, note the text, Mark 10, 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho without his, with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said to him, and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? It is the exact same statement that he asked James and John. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the road. He followed him on the road. James and John again asked Jesus for honor. And in exchange, they got a lesson in humility. Blind Bartimaeus asked Jesus for mercy, and he received a miracle at the very command of Christ. James and John asked Jesus for places of prominence and power, and instead of receiving them, they got a lesson of the danger of pride and a warning that those who lead in his kingdom can't read out of the Gentiles' playbook any longer, that his kingdom is a radically different sort of kingdom. Blind Bartimaeus asked Jesus simply for his sight simply for mercy to be restored, and he received not only physical vision, but spiritual vision as well. And he began to follow Christ on the road. Brothers and sisters, this morning I simply want to ask you, what do you see when you see Jesus today? 
If Jesus were here, and by the way, he is here. He is right here among us. And he said to you, what do you want me to do for you today? What would you ask of him? Would you say, hey, Jesus, I'd, I'd really like to be a leader in your church. I'd really like to have a position of authority. I'd really like others to serve me. I'd like to, I'd like to have a promotion. What would you ask Jesus? In a sense, he is asking you, what do you want from me? But be careful as to how you answer, because your request of Jesus indeed may reveal either blindness or grace-filled sight. Why are you following Jesus today? Are you following Jesus today? What is your motivation? Why are you following Jesus on his road? Have you taken up your cross to follow him? Now, mercifully, James and John, let's not be too hard on them. They really just represent what we would have done. But mercifully, they eventually get it. You'll recall that just as Jesus had predicted that these men would eventually drink the cup that he drank or be baptized with the baptism that he is baptized with, that's a, an expression simply saying that they would experience what he experienced. Not exactly. They, they didn't die on a cross like Jesus did for us, but they would experience suffering. They would experience what it means to serve God's kingdom in this way. Dr. Luke tells us in the book of Acts, chapter 12, verse 2, that James, this James, was killed by the sword by King Herod because he stood for Christ. Tradition tells us that John lived a long time, a somewhat tortured life. He died as an old man, perhaps back in Ephesus, but not before being exiled on the island of Patmos. And according to at least one tradition, John survived being boiled in oil for his faith in Christ. They would experience what Jesus had predicted for them. But I wonder today, how is your spiritual sight as you walk on the road of salvation with Jesus? How does your life stand up to the test of true kingdom greatness in Christ's kingdom? For Jesus Christ has set the true standard of greatness for us. He set the standard of what ultimate sacrifice and perfect servanthood looks like. Remember that great hymn of the early church that's found in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 3, says this. Listen to these words. What a great Christmas text this is. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Humiliation leading to service 
leading to exaltation. That is the kingdom pathway. Paul E. Miller has written a book, a relatively recent book, entitled The J-Curve, after the letter of J in the name Jesus. That we must descend into humiliation and undertake a ministry of servanthood in order to be exalted with Christ. The real test of true greatness in Christ's community is not found in looking for praise, but in giving it. It is seen not in seeking to be honored, but by being willing to honor others. It is demonstrated not by demanding a place of power, privilege, or prestige, but by lowering oneself to a place of humble service after the example of Jesus himself. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said something very similar to this when he says, Do you not also know that the way to be really great is to be little? And that he who is greatest of all is the one who has learned to be least of all? Servanthood by faith in Jesus Christ, the servant king, is the way to true spiritual greatness in the church of Jesus. There are any number of ways that the Holy Spirit may apply this passage to your heart or mine this week. Two things in particular have been in my heart over these last several days. Number one, that I would love my wife, I would love my children sacrificially and as a servant. Men. How will the Holy Spirit take this call to true kingdom greatness along the road of servanthood and apply it to your life? Moms, ladies, as you work. One pastor said, Christian service is done strictly for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. Be it in the nursery, be it in our youth ministry, whatever the ministry might be, are you taking up your cross and are you seeking to live accordingly? I'd like to close with a final quote from Pastor Dane Ortland that I think sums up this text so well. He says, For Jesus' disciples, the Messiah's death not only plucks them from the easy path to hell, but it also places them on the hard path to heaven. That if we tunnel into the very heart of Christian discipleship as articulated by Mark, we find echoing the mission of Jesus himself. We find this startling principle that loss is gain that death is life, that yielding all guarantees receiving all. Self-denial for the sake of the gospel is the secret to saving our life. This is the way, this was the way, the upside-down mission of Jesus worked out, and it is the path of discipleship for God's people today. Glad abandon is our sanity. May God be pleased to raise up a new generation of Christ-like servants. Amen? Amen? Let's bow in prayer. Almighty God and Father, again, we, we just simply stop to thank you for the preciousness of your word. We thank you, Lord, for its clarity. Even when we as disciples, depicted in the disciples here in Mark's gospel, are so thick-headed, and we simply can't see what is Right in front of our faces, your word is crystal clear. Lord, help us to be a people that embrace the cross, that we might experience real glory, but not any glory that is found outside of faith in Jesus.
God, we love you. We pray that you would take this text and press it deep into our hearts. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.